Hey everyone, I'm Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today grew up in the spotlight of historic controversy. As the child of the first wave of lesbian moms to have children and the unexpected battle of parental custody from the donor, she witnessed some of the most challenging injustices of our legal system. Anchored in a family that is filled with love and happy times since birth, she now carries the legacy of her nuclear family. Today, I want you to meet Cade Russo-Young. So earlier this fall, I watched a docu-series that I could not stop watching. I binge-watched all three episodes in one sitting because it was just so riveting. The documentary, the docu-series is called Nuclear Family. And like I said, it's three episodes um, by director Rai Russo-Young. It's a fantastic story, um, a slice of history that today we kind of take for granted because we forget that only 30, 40 years ago, uh, this was an issue and a problem. I'm not going to go into the details of the story because it really is extremely complex. And I really encourage you to pause right now, do a Google search if you haven't seen it, read up about it so that you can follow this episode. Um, but I'll tell you very briefly, it's basically the story of two moms who, um, part of the first wave of lesbians who, to have children uh, with donors, and how um, the agreement was that the children would be raised with their moms in their nuclear family, these two sisters, and each of the two little girls had a different donor. Um, fast forward, at some point, these donors sort of show up in their lives um, willingly by the family and with sort of setting healthy boundaries all of that is is disclosed and covered in the documentary. But at one point, one of the donors sort of becomes uh, obsessive about the little girl that is biologically his. And how and and the story of the little girl is Rai Russo Young, who is the director of the movie. And watching the documentary, I couldn't help but feel my heart tugging towards. Cade, the older sister, who basically sat and watched this entire um, thing happen to her family, to her, to her sister, to her moms. It, and it was really, really painful for me to just sort of watch um, how this affected this beautiful quartet, this foursome of a family, and how the uh, the legal system just put them through I mean, a storm, literally a storm. I won't go into the details of the story. It really is worth watching. Uh, you don't have to binge it like I did if you don't have three hours to spend. I usually don't, but this was really worth it. But I really encourage you to look it up and uh, acquaint yourself with this story because it is really a part of history. And uh, a part of history that not only we never want to forget, but we want to really use as an example as we move forward and create better policies and better laws that serve and protect everyone. My guest today is Cade, um, Rai Russo-Young's older sister. In the documentary, she um, just displays this beautiful, raw, and authentic self and story. And I wanted to talk to her a little more intimately. And um, I had such a great time. It was very moving. I will say this was one of the somewhat um, more um, just moving um, podcast episodes that I've recorded because it is really full of raw emotions and um, and just such 
complete and utter authenticity. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did having it with Kate. And I really urge you to check out this moment in history that is just so very powerful. Here's Cade. Cade, what an absolute pleasure it is to have you. I am, I can't even tell you how excited, I've been excited about many episodes that I've recorded, but this one in particular really, really excites me because I'm such a believer in storytelling and you have a very unique story. So welcome, Cade. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I really appreciate it. Uh, And I will say, full disclosure, I fanned out. I messaged you on Instagram, and I didn't even know if you'd ever see my message. And when you responded, I was like, oh, yes, this is meant to be. Um, Because I, I really... I really think we live in a time where stories can be told in so many different ways and become so much more accessible than they have been in the past, especially in the time where your story was unfolding. Now, I will say in my intro, I talked a little bit about, you know, excuse me, who you are, what your story is. And I really don't want to spend too much time retelling the story that's in the documentary because I want folks to go watch the documentary. But we will take that kind of platform and jump off of it and talk. So, um, Let me start at the very beginning, okay? Let's put the documentary aside for a second, and let's talk about Cade. I want to know a little bit about your, in your own words, what your upbringing was like. What are your memories, as far as you can go, of your upbringing? Um, I I remember my house was just filled with a lot of love. My, I mean, like my sister says in the documentary, like, it was really very, you know, I had a really magical upbringing. Uh, we, and we did, it was, there was a lot of joy and a lot of laughter. Um, and just a lot of, a lot of love. We really, you know, when I talk to people, I, and I talk about my childhood, I say, I, I always knew that I, that my, my mother's really, really loved me. I, I was always very secure in that knowledge. Wow. Um, we, my house was a lot of fun. It was, it was the house that like all the kids wanted to be at, you know, I, I, um, it was, (laughs) you know, we were sued and it was a terrible, terrible time for our family. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were actually at the premiere uh, the New York premiere. Um, and we did a question and answer. And then afterwards it was for friends and family. And a bunch of our friends came up to us and they were like, I remember coming over to your house during that time. And all we had was just a good time. Aww. Like you would never know, mm. like your house was just such a wonderful, warm place to be. Wow. Um, so that's really what, like, I remember, from my childhood, the most, I mean, obviously this horrible, traumatic, yeah. awful thing happened like smack dab in the middle of my childhood. Mm-hmm. But my biggest takeaways from, from the early years are, you know, Incredible. love and laughter. And it makes and my heart her. flutter. It really does. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Cause it's so beautiful to hear. And I, and I really would love to hear what your perception was, I guess, being the child of, um, well, first of all, two moms, and also, as the documentary says, perhaps 
um, maybe the first lesbian couple that openly, authentically, unapologetically started a family the way they did. So just so candidly, what was that like? Did you go out into the world knowing that you were different? I mean, for sure. There was so my household was a lot of like love and laughter and light, but there was definitely struggle in the world. My parents definitely were not the first, but we were the first wave. Um, and being part of the first wave did mean a lot of struggle and a lot of fight um, and a lot of fight out in the world and in school and with friends and teachers and administrators. And, and then obviously later with the court system. Um, but the whole point was that we came together as a family and supported each other through these times. Um, yeah, I mean, there was tons of struggle in school um, for for me, uh, I think, especially as the eldest, mm -hmm. um, as a little kid having to, like, break those barriers for the teachers, for the administrators, for, you know, the even just the student body to be mm -hmm. like, this is what uh, the kid, you know, of a lesbian family looks like. Mm -hmm. And then my sister came after me and they were all like, oh yeah, we've seen this before, you wow. know? But we really were the first out lesbian family in my school. Um, wow. Yeah, and the, and the reason why I was so drawn to your story is because, um, so, you know, my usual listeners know a little bit about this and, and other listeners who don't know this in UK, I grew up in a multicultural home. I grew up, my mom is Italian, my dad is Arabian, was, passed away, and I grew up in the Middle East, so extremely conservative in Saudi Arabia, with these two worlds that I was so aware were so different. And yet, we were the first generation of Saudi children that were the product of a Western and Saudi parents. Um, the very first, because my dad was born before the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was founded. And so I've reflected a lot on that, like looking back at all the struggles. Why? Because when you are the product of the first wave, like you said, there's so much pressure. And for you, especially as I watched the documentary, watching you as the eldest child, as the, um, the one that really is not the center of the fight, but watching your family suffer because of that. Um, and we'll get to that as we continue the conversation, what that means by the center or not in the sense um, <clears throat> of the actual story of, of the documentary, but just watching what that must have done for you. So what I'd like to know is in those days, how did you, besides your family, find solace when you were alone? As a young child, what were some of the thoughts that that you think helped you stay anchored? Well, um, I always knew that I, I was very protected by my family. I, I always knew that my parents, no matter what, would go to bat for me in any situation. Um, they also taught me how to fight for myself in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I really feel like if my parents had a like a catchphrase or a motto, it would be, we're here, we're queer, rise to the occasion or get the fuck out of the way. Um, <laughs> and it really has taught me how from a very young age to be a person in the world, you mm -hmm. know, like not just 
tolerate me, but respect me, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that's how we all approach the world as, as people, as women. Um, And it's how we approach the world from a very young age. You're not just going to tolerate me. You're going to respect me. Um, And so I think when I'm like alone, alone, Mm -hmm. you know, and and when I was like alone as a kid, the thing that always brought me like a lot of solace was singing. I turned to singing from a very, very young age. Oh, will we ever hear an album or? (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Now I, now I just sing to my daughter at night. (laughs) Oh, well, and honestly, there's no better audience. There really is yes. a better audience. She thinks I'm phenomenal. Of course she does. <laughs> of course she does. That That's really, really comforting to know that you had, you know, something that you knew was your little magic power. Um, yeah. Your identity sort of as a, and, and I, I love how this is also, how this unfolds in the story where, you know, growing up with two moms and knowing that it was not only okay, but encouraged to be authentic and to be yourself. And so, um I love when Rai talks about how she worried about betraying her sister and her moms because she was straight or identified as straight. Um, so that is kind of an interesting thing to hear that, right? Because the default is always the fear of coming out as not straight. For you, was that ever a time where you had to think about it or was it just like... I mean- Yeah. Yeah, So my journey into my queer identity was very long and complicated. And I found this a lot from first generation, from first wave, second generation queers. Okay. um, That there's this real pressure on first wave kids to be really perfect because when you do anything as a member of a minority group, you do it as sort of the flag bearer for all members of that minority group. So there is this extra pressure on you to be very perfect. And like I say in the film, you know, the reason that gay people you know, sh- were told like not to have kids was because their children were going to turn out gay. So, you know, no, it was no. the reason that gay people shouldn't have kids because they were going to raise gay kids. So there was this extra pressure on all of us first wave kids to be extra, extra straight. No. Um, to prove a point. And what? To prove a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To prove a point that we could be totally normal and totally straight. And this, you know, social experiment worked. Um, And I heard I've heard the same story from a lot of kids of my generation or now adults Mm -hmm. of my generation who are now queer, that there was this like deep, deep, deep social pressure to be straight. And they tried for a really long time, just like myself. Um, you know, tried having all the boyfriends, tried reading all the 17 magazines and the YMs and the Cosmos. And the, I mean, I had really long hair. I had full face makeup. I, you know, like all the, I had painted my nails until they turned yellow. You know, (laughs) I wore a lot of skirts and a lot of dresses. I had a long curly hair. Uh, and I just, um, 
And you can see a lot of that in the documentary as the videos and pictures unfold. It's it's really it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Quite, it's quite phenomenal. I have to and and we are a part of the same generation. I think I'm a little older than you. I'm in my late 40s, but I love just seeing the whole, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s morphing, not just style, but also just the way of thinking and of living and everything you just mentioned now. It's such a depiction of that. When would you say the moment came for you where you were like, and I know you talk a little bit about it in the documentary, but I do want to talk about it here as well. So it's, it was a very, I call it the seminal summer of 1995. (laughs) Uh, It was the summer that we won the case Mm. uh, or that, Mm -hmm. um, that Tom dropped the case. Um, And um, in that summer, Tom dropped the case. And so because Tom dropped the case, And then that next month, my, my sperm donor died. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there's a law on the books. I actually don't know if it's still on the books, but there was a law that said that children could not have more than two parents. So because of that, both of Rye and my legal parent our you know legal fathers had abdicated their paternity so our mothers were able to cross adopt us or do second parent adoption um and it gave us this feeling of real or me this feeling of real security that we had just come through this custody or uh, paternity and visitation battle um, and that would never happen again because we had this real feeling of legal security. Wow. Um, when my sperm donor died, um, we decided to go to his memorial service. And at his memorial service, we saw Tom and Milton and Chris and all these people wow. who had been so terrible to us. And I remember walking into the church and seeing them over on my on the left side of the church and um sort of like standing there and like with my body posture mm-hmm. having to say like you tried to break our family apart Um, and you didn't, and you lost. Wow. And this is what you're missing out on. Like you will no longer get to know me. Wow. And, um, and we stayed, we didn't stay for the whole service. We just stayed for a little bit. And I got to hear like some things about, um, my donor, um, that like sort of like made sense, for who I am, like, wow, just like this weird one thing, actually, that just one thing that I picked up on, which is that he uh, is fluent or was fluent in like five or seven languages. That's the thing that I heard at the um, memorial service, which like makes sense for how like easily I pick up music, easily I pick up languages. And I was like, oh, that like makes sense in my life. Um, and then, um, and then we left 
And, um, and it was like this, like, uh, like it was like everything snapped into place. I had like had like this really big, like moment of strength against people who had been, I, I like felt secure in a, like a way that I had never felt secure. I had a huge moment of strength. I had like a moment of clarity about like myself wow. and we, I realized, I, we were hanging out with um, a friend of my parents who I kind of idolized in this like really, really big way. She she had done incredible things in the law. She had also like built her own house and she was just a really wonderful person. And I just like put it all together that I, I w- was attracted to women mm-hmm. wow. and I wasn't, gonna like deprive like I've been hiding it from myself I've been like keeping it from myself and we were driving back from our we had a small house in upstate New York and it was like it was like a light bulb moment and I I had a moment of like hesitation about like, which am I going to like say this out loud? And then I just, I was like, I, I just like looked up from like what I was doing and was like, I'm attracted to women. And and you said it out loud. I just said it out loud. Wow. And my parents were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, um, wow. and I just, um, I realized that I, I don't know if I ever realized that I had a crush on like one of my friends, but like, it just became this like, like summer of discovery, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it's also the summer that I picked up drugs and alcohol for the first time. You know, it's like, it's like a summer that I came into my own in a huge way. Mm -hmm. And I like, I feel like I had like been trying to be a part of these like, popular cliques in school and and like trying and trying and um after that I just didn't try anymore and I walked into school like in you know my steel toed boots and my cargo pants and my <laughs> those what everyone will remember from the 90s those freedom rings yeah you know those oh, rainbow yeah. freedom rings totally. from the 90s yeah totally. and I that, wow. that was my uniform That's amazing that was my uniform for the oh. rest of my high school days and wow. Can I just say that that was such a, first of all, thank you for taking us down that journey because that was really powerful, very moving. My breath, I mean, I felt like I I was choked up with you. Um, To hear that despite the time and distance that has occurred since that moment, how completely alive it still is inside of you. And it probably will be forever. And in part, I'm sure it's because what we're seeing around us is also society still reflecting that. Kids are still scared to be themselves, afraid of coming oh, yeah. out, you know, all of that. So it's still a very powerful uh, part of the energy that we're we're uh, vibrating with, right? Um, and I also want to say, just to kind of refer, I, I in the intro, I've talked a little bit about the case and all that, and I do say, go see the documentary, because you have to see the documentary. But part of what we're talking about also is um, the fact that you and your sister are both born 
to, um, let's see, biologically carried by one mom each, and each had their own donor, so not the same donor, excuse me, and both donors were gay men as well. So all of these identities play a really big part in the story. I want to ask... And both donors died of AIDS. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay, so let's talk about that. Wow, there's just so much to talk about. So I want to talk a little bit about... um, kind of carrying everything you just said into the next realm, which is your identity and your relationship with your parents. Um, Your mom's, you know, one birthed you, so biologically you have that same DNA, um, and that is Sandy, right? Yeah, we call her Russo, but yeah. Russo, that's right. And so Russo um, uh, carried you. The the bottom line is is they're both your moms and there was no um there was no differentiating that when you were growing up, most likely. Um, not a conversation, nothing to ever think about. When the biological dad came in the picture, did you start to think about your identity, your, you know, your who 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 you really are, what you belong, you know, did those questions come up? Uh no. So the only No, good. There's yeah. no. It was never like I'm biologically related to one mom, so she's my mom, and my sister's biologically related to the other mom, so she's her mom. Right. That was never a thing in my family. Yeah, it's it's That's clear. Let me just say it's very clear. <laughs> like that was the whole point, and that was the whole reason that Tom, my sister's donor, had. Like it had to be sort of um, like given a, a little bit of distance by my parents mm-hmm. because he wasn't getting it, and he was treating my sister much differently than he was treating me mm-hmm. solely on the means like on the basis of biology. Yeah. I just um, want to say real quick here for the listener. I think the most beautiful part of that piece of the story is how your moms made it very clear that, that these two little girls are to be treated exactly the same, that there is no, this one's mine and this one's not mine. And, and how sacred that was for them. I have to say, I think it's the reason why you feel so loved. I mean, it must be an incredible yeah. thing to know that that's the case. Yeah, it it really, and, you know, you can, it really is. And you can see in the documentary, you know, Rye, I think, is very um, masterful at showing this moment in the first episode, on this, this moment on the phone where Tom, you know, it's like caught on tape. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. so crazy. It's really where incredible. Where Tom is like feeling disdainful at the fact that he has to treat me equally mm-hmm. um yeah, that incredible. moment on the phone oh yeah <laughs> that's a powerful and moment and it's like it's incredibly power and it's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult for me to watch mm-hmm. even as an adult um all these years as i'm 41 i have to be five in that photograph it's 36 years in that um video clip yeah. it's six years it's 36 years later and it's still like it's, I, I can't even really think about it that much. It's yeah. so incredibly painful. Yeah. Because mm. you and didn't that, know any other way. You, that was, that's just, she used, Rye uses that in the movie as this sort of window into what was going on at the time. 
um, that that kind of treatment of me was going on all the time. Um, this, Did you regret them? Sorry. This kind of favoritism. Yeah, no, exactly. No, no. no, I was gonna say in that moment when that was happening, did you in, in at any point wish that your donor dad was more present and fighting for you, for lack of a better word? Did that ever cross your mind as a little girl? Uh, not you, that I remember. So you were you literally were very like um well, first of all, you were very secure in your home and in your family. So you viewed these people as friends and nothing more. That's the impression I got was that your parents worked really hard at creating a community that was loving and inclusive, but also that it was clear your little nuclear family was the four of you. And they really yeah, did that. Much. Yeah. And it's and it really does come across very, very beautifully. Um I want Here's the thing go that I I think there is a place for these, you know, men who help make us that, you know, Jack and Tom, that there is a, a place for them in like a word for them. That's maybe not uncle. That's maybe not friend, you know, that's sort of somewhere in between that language hasn't come up with yet. Mm. You know, that, our, you know, our, you know, proves that our language is like woefully in, you know, mm-hmm. inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that they are part of our immediate family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they are part of our, our nuclear family, that they get to make decisions about our nuclear family. Um, so that just because they are, might be, you know, tangentially a part of our family um, it doesn't mean, you know, someone akin to an uncle, let's say, Yeah. it does not mean that they, anyone like that gets to make a decision, like, you know, decisions over our family. Can I just say that is probably the most generous, kind and compassionate thing I have heard in a very long time, because despite everything that's happened, you still have it in your heart to say, no, they are worthy of being something. They're not just the sperm donor, so be gone with you. You're, you're acknowledging the importance of the role they played in you existing in this world, basically, and recognizing that there has to be a shift in how we view these kinds of relationships. I, that, I'm very, very moved by your generosity of heart in finding... Um, just finding finding that in your heart. And I, and I wonder if that in part is also a continued manifestation of your growing family and your own, you know, place in the world as a parent. Um, how much has your life experience informed, A, you know, your growing self, and then B, your life today as a parent in your nuclear family with your partner and your child? I mean, I think everything that happened to me between the between the ages of eleven and fifteen, um, which is how long the case was, mm-hmm. and also Tom's treatment of me beforehand, has informed literally everything I do as a parent. I bet literally everything I do. Anything you want to share that really makes you think this is something I think about all the time? You know, I. I shared this with 
on another um, podcast I did, but I think it bears repeating. Um, and I think, cause I think about it all the time. I was treated so poorly by Tom and so unfairly by Tom for being, um, for being not biologically related to him. Wow. And at 35, I found out that I would not be able to carry a healthy fetus to term, which was devastating for me. And I was really, it was, it was real big grief for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But what that meant was that I would be able to love my own child who would be non-biologically related to me and change the the story, you know, like change that whole thing that had happened to me. Well, break that cycle. Exactly. Um, And that's happened. That's incredible. My husband, you know, I married this wonderful man and he got pregnant and, you know, now we have this amazing, incredible <laughs> two-year-old and I'm obsessed with her. It's just, it's, she's so fucking awesome. <laughs> I love that. It's, there's really nothing better than being a parent. I have to say. No. And, and I hear you and I feel you because my oldest son is not mine by birth. It, it, it's what on paper they call a stepchild. And he's been in my life since he was two. He's almost 25. So, you know, I technically raised him um, no differently than, you know, the two that I birthed. And so I know exactly what you're talking about, how that love is something you cannot even, I mean, you don't feel it in your body any differently. And yet, you know, you witness the rejection from someone that had that, you know, morphed, a warped almost view of how to see a child when you and your sister were so completely, you know, a unit. Um, and if he loved yeah, you her, realize it comes from such a narcissistic yeah, place. Right. Because if he loved, if he loved Rye, if that alone could have been reason for him to love you, that, you know, it's like, it wasn't even about Rye at that point. It was about him. No. It was right. You realize that then the whole case is completely about him. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and yeah. it really shows. And by the way, there is no, I have to say, it's kind of remarkable to see there is no need to edit anything. These are all videos that he took. These are home videos that he was somewhat compulsively, obsessively taking. And you just have to play the video, the home videos from his, you know, <laughs> and you're like, whoa, like there it is. Yeah, it's, it's very, very yeah. obvious. It really reflects. Um, I want to ask you this. Now, let's talk about your wonderful moms. Um, they're very different from one another. And can I just say that they are just like, I mean, seriously, goals, hashtag goals for like relationships. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and I love how completely different they are. I, I want to know how the two of them kind of parented you in a way that you knew there was this balance. Like, tell me a little bit about Russo and tell me a little bit about, you know, just the dynamic between her and Robin. Like, what was that like? I mean, I think they're very, like, a lot of people look at them and say, like, oh, they're very different. But to me, they're, like, more similar than they are different. Mm. Um, I would say if I'm, this is, I would say if I'm looking for someone to be just a little bit more nurturing and like 
in the feels, mm-hmm. I, w- I would go to Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, if I'm looking for someone to help me, like kick ass, kick ass, <laughs> I would go, yeah, I would go to Russo. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's funny when people come to me, my friend, you know, all my friends basically are queer moms. Wow. Basically. Mm-hmm. For the most part. And, and I exist, you know, in, in online spaces, most of my online spaces are queer mom spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was talking to a lot of my friends about like, oh, you're trying to get pregnant, you know, like, and they're like, tell me what to expect. Mm-hmm. I remember having this conversation with a lot of my friends and I was like, they're like, and I was like, you're basically just going to, it's not going to be like one mom and the other mom. You're just going to be the mom unit mm, wow. because that's how I think about my parents. Yeah. They're just, I call them both mom mm-hmm. um, because a lot of time when people were so confused by that and are so confused by that because but a lot of the time when I called for, when I'm like in my room doing homework, it's like mom or like when I'm in, you know, upstairs, I need help in the kitchen or something as a kid. And I was like, mom, it didn't matter which mom right? I got. I just yeah. needed a parent, exactly. you know, <laughs> so they become the like yeah. mom unit, exactly. you know, uh-huh. and they are a united front most times on most things, Um, you know, when it came to, you know, whether I was a little kid, when it came to whether I could stay out late or, you know, whether I could, you know, go to the party or, you know, whatever it Mm -hmm. was. And even now, you know, on things like whether they think I'm making the right choice Mm -hmm. to, I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. take the job Mm -hmm. or, you know, if I'm working too late, you know, they're still like this weird United mom (laughs) front, you know, like things don't change. It really shows in the video or in in the documentary, it shows how completely, it, it's like they, you, you said it, they've become one. It's like this <laughs> perfect amalgamation of two souls that just found each other. It really, like I said, yeah. hashtag goals. Like they are really, really impressive. They're That's like a, really, really well suited for each other. They are. And can I just say, I mean, not to say that, you know, I'm following you on Instagram now, so I'm not like voyeuring, but I love that one video you posted just recently of them oh, sitting with yeah. your baby and reading the book. I was like, oh my God. God. I know when oh. they they used to read that book to me, and now they're reading chicken soup with rice to my baby. Oh, yeah, it's, that was that video. It's magic. That it's it's really it all. magic. It says it all because you can tell they don't even know you're sitting there with your phone taking no, a video. They had this. no idea. Yeah, it was pretty precious. And can I also say your baby looks so much like you? Do you hear this a lot? <laughs> I hear it so much, it's which crazy. is so weird. It, it's incredible. <laughs> but, but you know, it's. I think it's yet another affirmation that we need to get out of our heads with this way and how we've been completely indoctrinated, how we see the world. I mean, more and more, I, I have many friends who have adopted kids who look just like them. It's, it's you know, it's, we start looking like our pets. Hello. Like, once your, your souls are intertwined, you truly become one in every sense. So... 
it's it it really does show. Um, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with your sister because it's it's just it's just so beautiful. I have a sister who I'm you know she's my everything. Mm. Um, and you as the older sister, having carried in great part the responsibilities in many ways, and at the same time also watching her being pulled and, um, you know, just the center of all of this. I, I want to know today, reflecting back together, what do you say kept the two of you as tight as you are besides your moms, just the two of you? Let's strip it down to just the relationship. I mean, so we've been incredibly close for ever. I mean, we, you know, we go up and up and down as sisters do, but like we've been incredibly, incredibly close our whole lives. Part of it is that we're 18 months apart. Part of it is that we were the only ones in school with mm. gay moms. Mm. Part of it is that we went through this fucking hellhole yeah. of a trial. Right. And we had to just, you know cling together with all our might as a family and as sisters. Um, And, you know, part of it is that she's really cool (laughs) and I like her (laughs) as a person. She's awesome. And a lot of it is that I can talk to her about our moms. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Only person who gets it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I want to ask this though, because Rye is the only member of the family that is straight for lack of a better, you know, it's like all these labels, but you know, let's, let's go there. Um, I, and you were talking a little earlier and said that, you know, the majority of your circle of friends are queer moms. And I mean, it's, it's clear that the larger portion of your community is queer and Rye is sort of the one that stands out. It's almost like every family has that one gay person, you know, the stereotype that we've grown up with, sadly. And in your family, it's the total opposite. She's that little, oh, there goes that straight person. You know, I'm just being funny. But, um, but in, in reality, how is that? I mean, I... How how does that help you be um, a, a little more, uh, gosh, how do I say this? So when we look at straight families that have a one gay member, you're like, okay, this straight family has tolerance and love and compassion because they know someone, because it's one of them. Is that something that the queer community thinks about? I'm curious. I've never had the chance to talk to someone about that. I am not going to speak for the whole queer community. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's just not a thing in our house. I think partially because Rye grew up in the queer community, all of her, and I'm, I also hesitate to speak for Rye. Mm-hmm. However, I do know that because Rye grew up to in the queer community, most of her cultural references are queer, mm-hmm. such as vacationing in P-Town, going to pride parades as a little kid, also vacationing in San Francisco on Stinson Beach and things like this, mm-hmm. that you know, going to drag bars thing, you know, like things like this, uh, not with my family, but like once you got older, you know, things like this, that queerness is, she, she found the term culturally queer Mm. at a young age. Um, sort I think in her teens and identified strongly with that term that she is, heterosexual but she identifies as being culturally queer that's so beautiful Um, and so i don't you know 
I don't know. That no, I, that's the perfect answer. That yeah. really is. I, I mean, you said it all when you use the word culture. That's not really a thing, yeah. you know, because she, you know, a lot of straight people, no, I, re, regular straight people, mm-hmm. straight people who have been raised by straight people exactly. only exist in straight spaces and then have that one straight friend. Right. Aren't in tune with queer culture. Yeah. yeah. You know? And don't and don't really know how to act around most queer people. Yeah. Um, and Rye is the total opposite. She's been raised in the queer community um, and knows how to act around most queer people. Mm-hmm. You know, just has queer culture in her bones. That's incredible. That what a beautiful way to just say that. It's just it's such. Gosh, like being able to just normalize everything and to just say it just is. There's no need to to identify it, to qualify it, to label it. It just this is just the way it is. And I, and that's why I think your story is so powerful. That's why I think the documentary is so powerful because we are living in a time where I think and I, you know, I, I hope I don't offend anyone when I say this, but I think we live in a time, and I say this as a multicultural person as well that's kind of struggled in this, like, world of identities, but we live in a time where um, the the current struggle at times forgets what people have been through in the past, how much blood, sweat, and tears have been, you know, poured in the past, that there is this disconnection of, like, that was that, that was history, and this is now. And yet, you know, your story is such an example of the the interconnectedness of time, history, feelings, people, emotions, all of that. And it, it carries through so beautifully. And I think it's an example. It's it's a true example of how to really think about ourselves in our, in our I family. I think I did an incredible job of weaving history and present into the documentary. Yeah. And I think Rye is really like one of the only people who could have done that so seamlessly the way she did. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. It's yeah. a very, very, very powerful piece of, of of history. It really is because it it shows and and the beauty of it. That's I, you know, I was amazed. I by the way, I binged it. I could not like stop watching it. And I was so amazed at the fact that there was so much footage. You were not a famous family. You did not have paparazzi. This was not something you thought one day we were gonna make this movie, but there was so much footage from back then. It's kind of a blessing, don't you think? It's kind of wild. Yeah. how much footage there is. I'm sure there's a little bit of trauma associated to it as well at times. Maybe it can be triggering. Um, and at the same time, I think it also has this incredible power. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, when you look at the, at the whole, I mean, you binged it, so you know it's like three hours. Yeah. When you look at the whole three hours and you're like, my word, there, you have been, on camera for 41 years of yeah, your life. You have. You You're really have. Like, before yes. reality was a thing, before reality TV yes. was a thing, I kept thinking that. And also, I mean, you ended up in the news. You ended up in on talk shows. Like, you were being documented by the society as well, not just in your own little private home, but yeah. the world was watching very, very yeah, totally. intently. Do you re- Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those days when you were sort of torn between the drama of it all, and then the somewhat celebrityism of it, like the attention from the rest. What was that like? I mean, there were, 
there were, I, it's a mixed bag. There were parts that were great. There were parts that were overwhelming. There were parts that were negative. Um, when we were getting press in 1993, it was, you know, people didn't understand when we were getting press in 2000 people also, it, you know, it was great. People loved when the documentary um, that Mima Spadola made in 19, uh, in she made it in 1999 and it came out in 2000 on PBS it's mm-hmm. called Our House. Right. And that's, she gave a, a rye, a lot of the raw footage. That's where you see a lot of the interview of me on the yellow couch yeah. and that weird tank top. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I wore a tank top in an interview, but. Um, <laughs> you were young. And, and who, age I was nothing, 19. I didn't age know has better. nothing to do with it, actually. May I refrain? But it was, she did an incredible um, documentary um, about five families mm-hmm. and we were one of the families and she gave Rye a lot of the raw footage to use. So when you see a bunch of these interviews of Rye and I and my parents um, went in like 1999 mm-hmm. that's from her movie okay. um and it's um the press from that was also mixed i remember that summer uh the summer of 2000 i was living in the west village where i was living home i was mm-hmm. living uh where in the west village and um i was very popular um I was very, very out and I was very, very single and I was very, very popular. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. that. Summer. Um, so there was like a lot of good then. And then, you know, I remember going on other talk shows and people asking me really weird, awful questions like, mm. you know, why are you a lesbian? And I was like, I'm a lesbian because I like women. <laughs> what kind of a question? No, like, what, I don't know how to answer that question. Like, can I just say it's weird that that question's even asked? Like even in those days, that's a weird question. I, yeah, I went on. I went on this talk show called Naked New York in two thousand and four ish, three two thousand three or four. Um, and the guy like straight up asked me, "Why are you a lesbian?" In the two thousands. Yeah, and I was like, "I'm a lesbian because I like women." Wow. And he was like do you think it has anything to do with your parents? And I was like, no, I, and I had to like, again, like do all this stuff, you know, to like prove I wasn't gay because of my parents. Um, and that it, there was no like nature, nurture influence kind of thing. Um, that is, that's the craziest thing I've heard. I'll be honest with you. Like the fact that people, first of all, that he even asked that, but but even just the fact that it crosses someone's mind. Um, oh, yeah. To, and to make the association, I mean, it just seems awfully, awfully crazy. Uh, but again, I mean, I keep forgetting. And we live in Washington State. We live in a bubble. We live in a very, very open bubble. There is no way that sometimes I can even accept that in other Parts of the world, parts of the country, these conversations are being had in the total opposite way. It just still blows my mind, I have to say. Um, so I, I and on along those lines where you talked about being very popular back in those days, obviously, you know, that was a great boost to your um, <laughs> to your to your social life. But you did mention a little earlier about that infamous summer, that fateful summer when a lot of things fell into place, including you mentioned um 
having, you know, uh, exposure to addictions or maybe um, right. not necessarily, I don't, and I don't, I'm not sure it was like full on addictions, but, but certainly um, having experienced something. Is there anything uh, that you can share about that? And we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but I'm curious about um, how we can use that part of your story as a, just as, as a way to connect with, with young people of every, you know, background and their struggles at some point? Well, you know, I think I'm 19 years sober now. And I think- Whoa, (laughs) amazing. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's older than two of my sons. That's incredible. (laughs) I think a lot of what people don't understand about addiction is that it stems out of childhood trauma and that I had this major childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and- it was the case. Mm-hmm. And directly after the case ended, I started using and abusing drugs and alcohol. And I did that for seven years. Mm-hmm. And um, I did that from the age of 15 until the age of 22, um, right after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, oh, you stopped after you graduated from college? Yeah, I mm-hmm. I I graduated in May and I got sober in September. Incredible. Would you from, I went to yeah. No, I was going to say would you say that because uh, you you associated that to childhood trauma and I I couldn't agree more. Um do you think that the reason why you started right after the case ended was because you were like literally living on adrenaline and then when everything ended it was like your way to say I'm going to like just numb everything and rest because it's just so much to process and to feel? So I um so I was so scared during the case that I had felt like I hadn't laughed and the drug that I started with was and became addicted to them and was like completely my downfall was marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted I used to get like super duper duper drunk. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. To, just to like ob- obliviate and like not think about anything. But the drug that like really took me down was marijuana mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I had, I felt like I hadn't laughed in like four years. Mm-hmm. Like I could not, laugh wow and i i smoked weed and i like figured out how to laugh wow that's so powerful and it was a really powerful experience for me um as someone who was having a really hard time finding any humor in the world after going through this lawsuit it was just, it was very difficult for me to give that drug up because I was having a really hard time mm-hmm. with anxiety and depression and weed was in, just incredibly powerful for mm-hmm. me. And so yeah, that's no, how I figured out how but, to laugh. I, I will say though, that's incredible. I mean, because sometimes, granted, I mean, seven years is a long time of in your youth, but but do you look back and have any regrets? I know that's a very, very loaded question, but you know, we, we've all made choices and decisions that today 
we would not want to make again. But oftentimes regrets um, negate where we are today. Do you have any regrets? I think my one regret is that I didn't pay enough attention during Smith College and I missed out on a I was better. just going to ask you about your education. Yeah, that's perfect. I missed out on a better education than I could have gotten okay. because I was partying too hard at Smith. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, and I think I, I think I was m- messier. I know. Don't think. I know. I was so much messier <laughs> than I wanted to be at college. Um, and I loved my experience there so, so much. And I feel like I didn't like suck the lifeblood out of it, like glean as much positivity Mm. as I could have. Like I, like I just kind of messed it up in a way with drugs and alcohol instead of, uh, instead of like really like getting as much out of classes and being the kindest person that Mm. I could be there and really like having all only positive Mm. connections, you know, which like I have so many incredible like connections and like these wonderful alumni now. Mm. Uh, alumni networks afterwards that are just like beautiful and lovely. And like, I have so many friends from Smith. Um, but I just, I, I just <laughs> wish I wasn't as messy as I had been, particularly my senior year. Well, I will say this, of course, I'm not in your shoes, so I don't know exactly, you know, what the experience felt like, but I will say that going to college when you're very young, whether or not you're partying hard or you're, you know, not paying attention, I think the experience in the way that you just so beautifully, you know, and eloquently expressed that I wish I had been this, I wish I had been kinder, paid more attention. I think those are things that even kids who go through college without any distractions take for granted. I think this is a little normal to youth and a little more um, associated to that. I, it's very rare to hear, yeah, college, man. I was like, I got it all. I was just like, even if you didn't mess. You haven't been to Smith. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. That's There's true. a lot of women who walk away doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I went to college young and I went to college as an adult and there's no comparison between the two experiences, intellectually speaking. I mean, what I'm yeah. getting as an adult is definitely a lot more powerful, but I 100% love your just your um your candidness about that that's that's really really beautiful um you know i'm really active in um online spaces mm-hmm. the smith online spaces mm-hmm. in particular and i think it's part of this like living amends to mm. how messy i was that's incredible so let's talk about your activity right now Let's talk about what's going on. I, we talked a little bit about your wonderful little family. Um, I want to know where Kate is today because the, the documentary says a little bit of, you know, what's happening in the world today. But I would love to know what kind of work you do. Um, I work. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. So I work in real estate. Um, I work in um, property management and closings. Um, uh, and... That takes up a large amount of my time. It's mm, a I bet. very busy, demanding job. Especially and where you live. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Particularly where I live in the market during the pandemic. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of my time is dedicated to my toddler. 
<laughs> who is in nursery school right now. And, um, is loving it and we just went to our very first parent teacher conference yay <laughs> she got glowing reviews of course uh, <laughs> well welcome welcome to the the most exciting part of existing and that is the journey of parenthood because there's literally I, like i said i've done it three times my youngest is 17 my oldest is 24 and 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 one in in the middle there at 19 and it's nothing nothing you'll ever do will compare to that to, to that part of your, and I'm sure you've heard that from your moms multiple times. Multiple times. And I also, it's made me um, calmer about my new job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I transitioned do- jobs in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the job that I transitioned from and the job that I transitioned to are, I would call them equally as demanding. They're, mm-hmm. they're sort of the same job. I just, um, they're equally as demanding, but the job I transitioned to, I feel like I'm able to have better boundaries around. Mm. Um, and my daughters helped me have better boundaries around that job. Yeah. You're, you're a mom you know, like, now. I don't care that yep. the work that like, I don't have a zero inbox right now. I have to get home and put my daughter to bed. Yeah. I love that. You know, Good for you. Like, I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. That is, that's the whole point. That that's why we exist, right? It's because we we have these connections and we we create them because we know this is our legacy as human beings. And yeah. I, and I I wanted to also kind of extend that into from from you know your job. And I want to ask you about activism just in general. Do you find that you are pressured to be an activist just because of your story? Well, I have been in the past a mm-hmm. huge activist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have protested the Westboro Baptist Church multiple mm-hmm. times. Wow. Before I was in real estate, I worked in HIV prevention education wow. for m- many, 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 many years um, in, here in um, here being New York, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, in Boston. Um, wow. I was working with queer kids. Mm. So I did social services for many, many years. Mm. Um, I, you know, I have, I've rallied, I've marched. I've marched in every dyke march since its inception in 1993. Um, You know, except for like, except for the one, maybe two, one where I attended my sister's wedding Mm -hmm. and two, maybe a second one, maybe a second one. There's like maybe mm-hmm. two that I didn't go to. That's still, I mean, um, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. No, like I, I am here queer, you know, like mm-hmm. for sure, but there is a piece of me now at 41 mm-hmm. when people are like, what is your responsibility to straight people sort of turns up like gives them the finger and is like, it's your turn now. Wait, that you know, is such like, an odd way of, uh, wow. I, that That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Because if anything, for me, I would feel like you, you've not only paid your dues, but you, you're like, it's like, no, it, it's, we showed up against our will. We just wanted to be a family. We just, my moms just wanted to have a family and we were thrust into the world to, to educate and teach people and, and be, you know, the, the, 
kind of the beacon of it all. And now it's time for us. And to that's what I said to this guy on this podcast. He was like, you know, if you, how, how would you, you know, explain things to, I forget what he said. But, mm-hmm. And I was like, I wouldn't, I'm not anyone's educator mm-hmm. anymore. Just as, you know, I said to him, like, just as we wouldn't expect black people to educate about racism, exactly. like I'm done educating about homophobia. It's time for straight people to step up and do that. Work. Absolutely. Yeah. No, good for you. Uh, I mean, applause, applause. I mean, that you're absolutely right. And, and you, you have like more than earned your dues to have that peaceful, quiet life that, that your mom wanted, your moms wanted to have so desperately to begin however, with. Yes. Just time out. However, then I go and have a pregnant husband. So, you know, <laughs> and you're back I'm in not the like entirely done because oh, let's, let's now talk, we're in the let's school talk. system and I have to like, yeah, so not entirely done. Well, let, let, <laughs> let, let's talk about that. I want to know more about that. I want to know what you want to share with us about your beautiful relationship. Um, we've all fallen in love with your moms and I would love to <laughs> to fall in love with your story as well, because um, it just sounds delicious. Oh, it is delicious. <laughs> Max is particularly wonderful and delicious. Um, <laughs> we met in 2015. So we're actually about to celebrate like seven, seven years, years of being together. Um, and Next month is our five-year wedding anniversary. Wow. I know. That's incredible. Congratulations. Um, uh, When we met, he identified as female. And then about eight months, or no, like six months into being together, he transitioned into being male, Mm -hmm. which is super typical for my relationships. (laughs) Uh, He's like the fifth person Mm. to do that with me Mm. um um yeah so that was no surprise to me (laughs) I actually used to I've actually joked with my friends that if people feel like they're questioning their gender they should just date me that's incredible um (laughs) I am that's funny I I don't know if it's something about about me or something about like the people that I choose to date, Mm. but I have definitely dated more than Mm. the average number of people who have transitioned in the middle of a relationship. Mm. And does that, does that in any way interfere with your identity as a lesbian or as a person? It doesn't. Okay. I love that. I think maybe in the beginning it used to, Mm -hmm. but it certainly doesn't anymore. And Max is, crazy about my identity as a lesbian because he feels like it ties him to his feminine past Mm -hmm. he's he identifies as being a Mm non-binary trans man so he he feels like it it, it ties him to the woman he used to be which he is still totally comfortable talking about and um and being Mm -hmm. you know he Mm -hmm. he doesn't have an um the typical trans narrative or the mm-hmm. trans narrative that you hear more often in uh mainstream media of um you know I knew from a very early age mm-hmm. that I was male and it, you mm-hmm. know um max and then 
you know, it's taken me all this time to come out, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. the story that we hear so often in um, the media. That's that's not Max's story. Max um, knew that he was female for very many years Mm -hmm. and then transitioned to being male. Mm-hmm. And that's his story. Exactly. And, and and what freedom is there in being able to say that comfortably, openly, without fear of being rejected or ridiculed by any community out there? Because I think there's a lot of fear in, in, you know, in all the communities when you feel like you just... So the podcast that, that just came out um, that I was mentioning, we were talking about earlier, um, it's a Black artist, is a female Black artist, and she was talking about how her story was not the typical, you know, Black child that grew up with only one parent or maybe poor or struggling or confronted racism. I mean, hers was just a very middle of the line, you know, uh, middle class family, both parents at home still together. She's in her 50s. Her parents are still. So she's like, so while I recognize that that is a conversation we have to have, of course, I can't say that that has always been my story. And there's a lot of backlash about that. And so I've also heard from some of my close friends who are in the queer community of that pressure of like, we either stand in solidarity together for one cause and only one cause or or you're not part of the conversation. Um, and and yet everyone, it, that's why it's a rainbow. Like everyone has their story and their version. And I think you are both uh, just creating such an example, first of all, as parents, because when you become a parent, that's it. You are committed to being the best version of yourself, whether you like it or not. That's it. You know, you're sentenced for life to be the best version of yourself. And now you're doing it for your child, not for anyone else, not for the community, not for the society, not for uh, not to speak on behalf of anyone, but just to show up in the world and be the example for your child. Yeah. And does that in any way then um, change the relationship with your parents now that you're a parent? Do you see, you know, um, parts of your relationship with them in any way? either explained all of a sudden or change and morph into something new now that you are a parent? You know, it's, it's just amazing to be a mom with my mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rye said in terms of making nuclear family, Becoming a mom for her Mm. is what allowed her to truly make this Mm. docuseries. Wow. You know, understanding truly what it means to be a mom and then have that feeling of, oh my God, someone could take my child. Wow. Yeah. Seriously. And being able to do the work around that to make that film. Um, and so, but us all being, being moms together is now quite wonderful and being, I don't know. It's so funny. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a mom because of my moms. Oh, oh. <laughs> So being able to be a mom with them as grandmas and my, you know, it's, it's really magical. Well, it's like when they ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And usually kids will see something that they look up to that's heroic, a teacher or a doctor or, you know, whoever, and you wanted to be a mom. 
those were your heroes. I mean, I did want to be a mom. It, you know, career has always come and gone. And like, what do I want to be? What do I want to be? It's like, that's always changed. Sometimes it was doctor. Sometimes oh, it no, was no. a singer. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I, I always wanted to be a mom. Exactly. And I think that that's a testament to your moms because that was Definitely. the example. 100%. For the, yeah. The biggest heroes in your life were your moms. And so you wanted always. to be a mom. Yeah. Everything else comes and goes. But to be a mom that for you, I mean, it's it's clear for both of you, for both you and Rye. I mean, it's really obvious the influence. How are your moms today? What are they up to? How did they feel about the, the docuseries? I mean, how, how has your life as a family changed since that, you know, all that attention once we're again. All great. I we're all doing great. It's all been wonderful. I think um I I mean we're all doing great. They they're right upstairs. They're they're doing great. Oh that's you so know, amazing we live in the same we live in the same building. That just makes my heart explode. <laughs> that is the greatest thing. And it's um yeah with the reception what I was you know sort of saying earlier about like how it's being received as opposed to like 1993 and then 2000 and and how it's being received now is so validating mm-hmm. um in terms of how it feels like the world perceives us as a family um has it's really been so the reception to the film has been so validating and vindicating and it sort of feels like winning all over again um and uh you know my parents get recognized on the street yeah um it's uh it's really wonderful yeah i bet um go ahead yeah and we're all doing great no i i i want to ask as we wrap up here what is the biggest um Mm, this is a big question, so I'm going to try to word it in a way that I don't overwhelm you. <laughs> but what would you say is, so we started the conversation with you talking about how just magical and love-filled your childhood was. And in between, there was this storm and, you know, moments that you were picnicking and these beautiful bright days, like your life was full of all of those things. Now, looking back after 41 years... And having the awareness, at least 36 years of that, of of everything you've been through, and watching history unfold, both around you and within you, what do you think today is the biggest, most powerful takeaway from all of this? That history has really changed. Mm, Wow. I mean, it's that, like... Wow. I mean, it's different. It's, you know, we went through this awful, awful case. And like, by and large, because of laws that have been put in place now, people don't go through that anymore Mm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are laws on the books that are there to protect people from donors suing them. And it's not just laws that are on the books anymore. It's perceptions of what a lesbian family is and how valid 
a lesbian family is Mm. that has changed why this shit doesn't happen anymore. So we were the first in 1993 and we were the first so that others could not go through this and it sucked, but now others don't go through this. Yeah. And it changed. It changed that, that to me, that's like such a, that's like a quote, you know, like when you have posters of people, you know, that have their one phrase, yours is definitely things have changed. Cade was so young, like, because it's, you know, especially coming from a young person, because you are still the younger generation. And for you to say that with such confidence, when there's still so much complaining about how horrible things are because they there still are things that are horrible and yet we forget you know i went and saw gloria steinem a few months ago or right before the pandemic and she said you know just from the feminist perspective she says i'm 80 something now things have trust me we've come a long way and you still have to be angry and fight but recognize because otherwise you are just turning your back on all of those who suffered and did the work and your family has suffered and done the work so you are absolutely right. I think when I talk about, like, it's been vindicating and validating, it's also been particularly, I think particularly so for me in, um, again, these uh, online spaces that I'm in that are filled with queer parents and queer queer moms in particular, mm-hmm. who, you know, I've, I've hung out with a lot of queer moms who are like, oh, it sucks right now. It's, you know, it sucks. It's, mm-hmm. it's awful. And I'm like, it's different. And they're like, no, it sucks. And then, and I, and like, I get it. No, there's a lot that mm-hmm. has to change. Mother, father forms. It sucks. Yeah. There's a lot that still goes on. There's a ton of discrimination. I get it, yeah. but it's different. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, I'll, you know, there's been a bunch of, like people who have seen the film and been like, oh, it's different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are <laughs> like, words of wisdom. Yes. Yeah. Words yes. of wisdom. It's different. And it takes courage. It really it's takes changed. courage. 100%. Yeah. It really like has. My, I mean, just for example, my parents could not go to a sperm bank because they were lesbians <sighs> to get sperm to make their family. This is this is forty two years ago. Yeah. That is it. That is not a thing anymore. Mm. That and so thing. many other things. Yeah. I mean, and so many other things. Yeah. You know, now there are like you know you, online contracts that you just like print out and drop with your donor, and that like holds up in court. You know, yeah, it's huge. I mean, so many other things. Revolutionary, for sure. I mean, it, it. This was a revolution, and you, your family was in the forefront of this revolution, truly. And and I'm so grateful that this is documented for the rest of time. I mean, way to go, Rye. I mean, what a great way filmmaker. to go, Rye. What a great filmmaker she is. I mean, it's truly incredible what she put together because it's so hard to do something so personal, so intimate, and so um, emotional. And yet, 
It was just deliciously and beautifully done. The funny moments, the moments where you cry, and I cried, I cried. It's, it's, I cried and I know how it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) I believe you. I believe you. I mean, just, just thinking about it, um, brings emotions that I think affirms that we are all humans, that it doesn't matter. I did not have to grow up with two moms and go through what you went through to feel that in my core with the pain and the emotion that you did. Uh, We can all draw from our own struggles the same emotion that makes us or should make us kinder human beings. And that's uh, the other thing that I really hope your documentary will do is that it doesn't only have to speak to folks that know what that struggle is, but to just find a stronger muscle of empathy in their hearts to, to know that, you know, they are privileged or they do sit in a very advantageous situation. So thank you for, thank you for inviting everyone into your life. I know in great part, it was not, you know, by choice when the whole thing started, uh, but you definitely took advantage in all the right ways of the narrative and made it what it is today for history to change. And and I I very much appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I had very little to do with <laughs> nope. being born, but you know, <laughs> I did my best after. You had many choices after that moment. After that moment, you had many, many choices. And today we've talked about all the choices that you've made, that you've taken, and that you continue to do that have completely and continuously uh played, you know, the the part that that this whole story started. I mean, you, I, I I can't imagine any child being able to make their parents any prouder than 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 you and Rye and and the cycle and the circle continues with with your family now. So it's kind of incredible. Cade, now that I've uh, just, wow, this was incredible. I do want to end the way I end all of my podcast episodes, and that is with a fun little round of uh, rapid-fire questions. These are super random, but the whole point is to get to know you. And I feel like we've really been able to dive into the most intimate and and, uh, powerful sides of who you are. And now I want to see a little bit also of the crazy fun side. Uh, maybe oh, okay. th- those those sides of you that that um, we would have known during your college times, but no, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is very, very harmless. But I'm just going to ask you questions and first answer that comes to mind. Okay, ready? Sure. Traveling or being at home? Traveling. Music or art? Music. I think I know that now. I didn't know it when I wrote the question. Uh, books or movies? Books. Favorite fruit? Watermelon. Mm, yum. Uh, favorite parent moment? This doesn't have to be one word. Your favorite parenting moment? So hard. I know. I'm so mean. Uh, it happens every night, but every night I, um, or like every time I put my daughter to sleep, I sing. Um, good night, my someone. But I think uh, from the Music Man, mm-hmm. you know, good night, my someone, good night, my love. But I change it to good night, Psy Baby, and she sings it with me. And no. then um, at the end, we do this like count the kisses um, before I put her into bed. And every night, she can count higher and higher which is uh, really 
really incredible. And we've gotten up to 15, you know, it's like, are you recording amazing? And it's just like to watch. And every night she sings along with me and she can sing more. And it's really just like a beautiful moment. I hope you're, it's just like, I like, it's a, I love it every night, every night I put her to bed. It like is the best thing. I love that you had that. That is so tangible. It's so beautiful. All right. Well, my next question is your escape sanctuary. It sounds like this is one of them, your moment when we go to bed with baby, uh, but mm-hmm. another escape sanctuary for you. Herring Cove Beach on in P-Town. Mm, gorgeous. Um, okay. The 70s, the 80s, or the 90s? The 90s. Okay. <laughs> uh, best concert you've ever attended? Uh, con- concert, um, probably, uh, wow, that's really hard. Uh, it's a, it's a real toss up. Okay. Um, okay. So like, if we're talking just like, not like going to the opera it can be anything like, you no. want anything you want <laughs> i'm going to exclude the opera okay. and the philharmonic and talk like regular music yeah. um i had a really incredible concert experience both at the justin timberlake concert it was such a damn show i believe that he's a really incredible showman i believe that um it was just straight up two and a half hours of singing and dancing and he covered everyone and it was really quite magical um but i would probably say just edging that out Mm -hmm. would be Mary J. Blige on Jones Beach. Oh, wow. Um, She is probably hands down one of my favorite artists of all time. Wow. And she was on Jones Beach in the half shell and it was just, and it was uh, (laughs) the early 2000s when music was like, yeah, hip hop music and R&B was like at its peak best. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it was gorgeous. Yeah, I remember those days. And she, when she came into the scene, it was like, oh, my God. She was on loop in my ears as well. But So you yeah. answered the next one. My next one was going to be your favorite, well, maybe not, but your fav- favorite performer of all time in any genre, your favorite performer of all time. Um. Oh, well. Okay. So, like, I really love Mary J. Blige. But nobody tops Joan Sutherland as an opera singer. Mm, Wow, incredible. you ever want to get me happy, you just have to put on the first act of La Traviata with Joan Sutherland singing it. I'll take it. And I'm like, out of my mood. Opera's my favorite Also Dolly Parton. Also Dolly Parton. Yes, right? Anytime, anywhere. Dolly Parton. A hundred percent. Yeah, we have very similar taste in music. I can tell because opera is my favorite by far. And uh, I'll go and see Dolly Parton anywhere, anytime. Uh, My sons are into her. Like, come on, it's Dolly Parton. I'm with you. It's Dolly Parton. Yeah. Okay, this is my last question. And I ask this of all my guests. Okay. And I, you live in New York, so I don't know. This could be, it can go anywhere. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? 
Secretly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you answered it the way I would answer it, although I will never say it out loud. But, you know, I'm half Italian, so I'm very indignant about the pineapple on pizza. And I never get it. But if it's offered to me, I will sneak a piece. Me too. I will never order it, though. <laughs> I okay. will never eat it in front of anyone else. That is so perfect. You, you have concluded what I already knew about everything I have completely put in my mind about you as a person to perfection with this answer. So thank you. That was incredible. Thank you so much. Kate, this was such a pleasure, such an honor. I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to have this conversation. I look forward to continuing to follow you on, on social media. I look forward Yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to um maybe an album in the future. You never know. <laughs> could be could be an album for a nursery song. Yeah. yeah, right? Could be just about Psy Baby. <laughs> Or a documentary, another documentary in the future, a follow-up. But thank you again, truly, for your courage, for your family's courage, for uh, just showing up in the world as authentically as you are. We really, really are blessed by people like you. So thank you, Cade. Thank you very much. This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk, edited and mixed by Eros Falk. Original music by Dante and Eros Falk. Recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Mm-hmm.